everybody, and welcome back again to our online worship service, our streaming uh, community here through New Community Church. So glad that you're choosing to be with us. And let me just say to the moms, to the grandmas, to the grannies, the Gigi's, the nanas, whatever you're going by these days, uh, we are so glad that you're here. Happy Mother's Day. We're grateful for all that you do, who you are, all that you give. Um, to your kids, to your grandkids, to everybody around you. And, and so we're thrilled that you're here. And I'm also going to say I'm probably going to mess up your Mother's Day worship service right now because i got to open this message with a sports story. I do apologize, but it doesn't last long. Hang in there and bear with me. I want to show you uh, a picture from one of the most famous NBA basketball games that I can remember ever being played. This was the 1997 NBA Championship Final Series. So best of seven series. It's Game 5, greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, LeBron, folks, just, you, you can't even talk, right? Michael Jordan, game five in the series, and he gets to the arena, and he has flu symptoms. He's feeling terrible. He's, he's as sick as can be, and you can see it. At the end of the first quarter, the Bulls are down. They're losing uh, to the Utah Jazz pretty substantially, and then something happens, and Jordan just takes over, right? Like, he just goes off. By the end of the game, he scores 38 points, less than a minute left. He hits a three-pointer, takes the lead for the Bulls. They kind of hold on to that for the rest of the game. They end up winning the championship. It was unbelievable. As a 17-year-old kid, I remember this game, right? I remember exactly what was going on that night. But the funny thing is, is I was thinking about that this week because we've been watching in our house, we've been watching this documentary that's out now about Jordan's final year in the NBA called The Last Dance. And I was thinking about that game and they were showing images and I remember, I don't remember exactly how Jordan played. I don't remember the incredible game. But what I do remember is this image that I want to show you right now. I remember this image of Scottie Pippen holding Michael Jordan up as they walked off the court. Now, I don't know if you know NBA, but if you, if you know Jordan and Pippen, right, you know Jordan was Batman and Pippen was Robin. Like, they were the dynamic duo. That night, Jordan had 38 points, Pippen had 17. Like, they were in it together. It was an incredible combination. There was so much, so many amazing things they accomplished. But this image of, of Pippen holding Jordan up as they staggered off the court, he was so sick, just stands out to me. You know, we're in week four of a series that we've called Close Quarters, and we've, we've kind of dug into this series in the midst of this global pandemic that so many of us have been forced to stay at home. And, and what we've been raising the question is, how do we love the ones closest to us in the midst of close quarters? How do, we, how do we love our spouses, our kids, our neighbors, our friends well when tension hits, when, when struggles come? What does it look like to keep committing to love well? And to this point in this series, what we've really raised is the internal struggles. How do we love when we're grumbling, right? How do we love when we're quarreling? How do we love when there's stress coming at us? But what we haven't talked about we haven't talked about the external struggles. We haven't talked about the attacks that come at us. We haven't talked about the things that are really outside of our control. You, you know what I'm talking about. You get a cancer diagnosis. You didn't even see that coming. How do you keep loving well in the midst of that? Or, or you get laid off and you didn't see that coming and it just feels like somebody threw a ton of bricks at you and now the stress level has just sky 
rocketed? How do you love well in that situation? What does it mean when a death pops out of nowhere? Somebody you love, somebody you care about passes away. How do you keep loving well? How do you love well when your parents divorce and you have no control over the situation and it really feels like an external attack? In the midst of this pandemic, none of us saw this coming. How do we love well when that stress just keeps rising? You know, I think a lot of times the things happening to us can cause way more stress than the things happening in us. I think it varies, right? We, we have stress that comes in us and we don't always know what to do or how to handle that. But, but oftentimes it's the things that happen to us that we feel like we have no control over that cause way more stress than the things happening in us. I want to share a little bit more of the story of the Israelites that we've been talking about today with you. We, for, the, for the past three weeks, we, we've talked about this, this desert narrative that comes out of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapters 16 through 18. And we've been talking about all that the Israelites experienced after they left slavery on their way to the promised land that God had promised to give to them. It's an incredible story. Several things that we've, we've dug into. We said that we found the Israelites after 400 years in slavery. They are released from captivity by miraculously crossing the Red Sea. God parts the waters when they come out of Egypt and they walk across on dry land. And then even as they cross that dry land and the waters come back over the Egyptians and drown them, we see the Israelites worshiping. And that's that's really where this desert narrative starts. And we said at the end of Exodus 15, they're at a place called Elam. Elam is known as kind of this paradise spot. If you were going to go on vacation, you'd go to Elam because there were palm trees, there were fresh springs. It's a great place to rest after 400 years of slavery. But then God says, go, I want you to enter the wilderness. I want you to enter the desert and the space when they're in the desert they're actually between Elam between the resting place paradise and they're between Sinai which which is the next part of the book of Exodus where God will come down on the mountain and reveal his law to the Israelites so in the desert they're between rest and revelation and we've said this is the place where the testing happens where they find themselves wandering and so we talked a couple weeks ago about the people grumbling against Moses, against Aaron, against their leadership, saying, why didn't you leave us in Egypt? Now we have no food. And God showed up and provided manna for them. And then they, they quarrel about the water. We're so thirsty. Why didn't you provide water for us? Let's just go back to Egypt and die because it was better to die with food in our bellies and water in our stomachs than be here in the wilderness. And God miraculously provided water. These were all the struggles, all the things inside them that were messed up. But then we come to Exodus 18, and we find this story that I think is so fascinating because it's the first time the attack on the Israelites, the stress on the Israelites, comes from somewhere outside of themselves. We're told that there's this group of nomadic people, this tribal people known as the Amalekites. And the Amalekites come, it says, and they attack the Israelites in the desert that they actually wage war on the Israelites. And as this is happening, the people, of course, are, are, are terrified. And it says that God said to Moses, he told Moses what he wanted to do. And so Moses says to this brand new character in this story, he says to Joshua, and I'll tell you about Joshua in just a minute, but he says to Joshua, choose some men to go fight the Amalekites. 
Choose some men to go fight the Amalekites. And then Moses says this, Tomorrow I will stand on the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, there's a couple things here that are so interesting. First, we haven't met Joshua in this story. If you grew up in church, you may know there's an entire book of the Bible called Joshua. So he becomes a pretty important figure. In fact, when Moses dies, Joshua will, also, will, will be the new leader of the Israelites. He will be Moses' successor. When Moses is told by God, you don't get to enter the promised land, Joshua becomes the one to lead the Israelites into the promised land. He is the up-and-coming leader, and he's the one in this situation that Moses says to him, choose some men to go fight. Now notice the second part of this. Moses isn't going to fight this battle. Moses says, choose some men to go fight the Amalekites because tomorrow... I will stand on the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Moses is going to actually not be a part of the battle. He's not going to be there. He's actually going to be on the hillside watching the up-and-coming leader in the Israelites fight the Amalekites. This is, this is a fascinating part of the story. This is also, again, the first attack that has come from outside the Israelite tribe. This is someone coming against them, and it's an active fight. It's not just something passive. To this point in the Israelites' history, God has shown up through plagues. God has gone after the Egyptians, and he's really not required a lot of activity from the Israelites. But here, he says to the Israelites, you will fight. Joshua, choose some men to go fight. Now, the story goes on to tell us this just amazing description of what happens when the battle actually starts. Moses goes up on this hillside with his brother Aaron, the other leader of Israel, and a man named Hur, H-U-R. And it says that they watched the fight, and as long as Moses held up his hands with the staff of God in his hand, as long as his hands were lifted, the Israelites and Joshua would win the battle. But when Moses' arms grew tired and they began to fall, the Israelites would lose. Now just picture this for a minute. Joshua is fighting this battle, and every time he sees Moses, he sees his hands lifted. The Israelites are doing okay, but if Moses' hands get tired and they start to drop, the Israelites suffer more casualties. How long can you hold your hands up for? And then the story tells us that these two men with Moses, Aaron and Hur on either side, hold Moses' arms up. They support his arms, and when he gets tired, they keep holding his arms. In fact, they even bring a stone and they say, sit down, Moses, but we will keep your arms up. Arms up. And then there's this, this other piece that I think is so important here, where God says to Moses, write this down so that you may remember, because the Israelites were victorious. Write this down so that you may remember, and then he says, and make sure Joshua hears it. Now, I want you to see this picture again, and I want you to imagine Moses and Aaron and her standing on that hillside, because this moment is just like this picture. This is the Jordan and Pippin Moment. This is the moment where there was no strength left in Moses, but someone supported him, where the battle was not Moses's to fight, and so he held his hands aloft in surrender. But as long as his arms were up, the battle would be won. Now, if you go on and you study 
the life of Joshua. It's just an amazing, amazing life. He's an amazing young man who leads the people so well. If you read the book of Joshua, you'll find that Joshua and the Israelites actually fought 13 more battles on their way to taking hold of the promised land that God had offered to give them. And throughout the book of Joshua, there's this phrase that Joshua, as the leader of the Israelites, utters again and again and again to them in encouragement. He's constantly telling the Israelites as they fight these 13 battles, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong. At one point he says, and very courageous. And then late in the book of Joshua, we see Joshua on his own deathbed. He's about to leave this life. And as with anyone who's on their deathbed, he has time to collect his thoughts. He has time to collect words of wisdom. Now, I want you to think if you were the leader of an entire nation of people and you had led them through 13 battles and you had led them across the Jordan River into the promised land that God had given them, what would be your words of wisdom? I think I might like to remember some of the battles I fought. I think I might like to remember, you remember that game I played? I scored 38 points, right? I, I think Joshua might want to highlight some of the things that he had done. But here's what he says. He says, you have seen, as he's dying, you've seen everything the Lord has done. And then he says, it was the Lord your God who fought for you. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. You know what I think Joshua remembers as he's laying on his deathbed? I think he remembers Moses' arms up. I think he remembers Aaron beside Moses holding Moses' arms up. I, I think he remembers her beside Moses lifting his other arm. I think he remembers that from the outset of his fighting career before any of the other 13 battles, I think Joshua remembers that the fight did not belong to him. It was not achieved by him. Victory did not happen because of him. It was only because of God. And when God says to Moses, write this down and make sure Joshua hears it so he remembers Joshua remembers, and he never forgets. You know, there's, there's moments in our lives. That there's, there's circumstances and there's situations for all of us, I believe, where we learn to live better because someone who mentored us gave us a battle to fight. I think there's, there's, there's seasons, there's situations in our life where we learn to live in better ways because the person who could have fought the battle for us, our mentor, our family member, whoever we look up to, chose to step out of the battle and instead said, no, it's your time. You go fight the battle. I was listening to this interview this week. Don't judge me. I, I was listening to this interview with, with the prolific bass player from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the guy who goes simply by Flea, right? And, and, and Flea was talking about how he started playing the bass guitar and he really had no interest in rock music. But there was a guitarist, a friend of his, who came to him and said, I want you to learn the bass guitar. I want you to play in our band because the guy who's playing now doesn't believe in the music enough. And as Flea, who, who is, is known as one of the greatest bass players of all time, as Flea tells this story, he's getting emotional and he says, when that man came to me and spoke those words to me, he said, I felt seen for the first time in a long time. 
He said it was the most loving thing someone had ever done for me, speaking a vision into my life. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever had somebody look at you and say, I see something in you. I see a potential in you. I see an opportunity for you. I see something God wants to do in you. And I want you to live up to that. Have you ever had that moment, that circumstance? I remember when I was in college, I believe, or maybe late high school, Scott Trent, many of you know Scott. Scott came to me and said, I've got an opportunity at a church and and they've asked me to speak, but I want you to speak. I want you to share the word of God. I would say that changed my life, right? I I remember at college, there was a band playing one night and I was friends with a couple of the guys. I was just wanted so badly to be around the music and around what they were doing. So I'd hang out in the dorm rooms and I'd have a guitar, but I knew absolutely nothing. And and I remember the one guy that I didn't know very well, he said, we're playing this show and you're going to run sound for us. It was the worst decision of his life or their life as a band. I had no idea about what it meant to run sound. And so as they're setting up, I'm standing at a soundboard having no understanding, no idea of what the knobs did, what the controllers did. There was no Jason Claypool around me at that point. But I remember just being there and loving it and yet having no clue. And as they began to rehearse, somebody came up to me and said, oh, you want me to do this? I'll I'll take care of it. I know what I'm doing. And I kind of stepped aside. And the guy on the stage who had asked me to come and do that came back and said, no, I want Justin running sound tonight. Those were moments in my life that mattered. Those were moments where someone spoke into me, and you know what? They saw something in me so I could live something out of me. This is where Moses and Joshua are. Moses says, Joshua, you go fight this battle. I'm not fighting this one. I'm not leading this one, Joshua. You go step into this moment that's yours. John Calvin, the great theologian, said that the sign of Moses lifting his hands was actually a surrender of Moses's leadership. It was actually the moment of saying, someone else gets to lead now. There's this principle that I want you to understand today, and it's a close quarters principle. It's something that we have to understand, especially as we love the people around us, the people closest to us well. It's something that we have to grab onto, especially if you're in the business of raising others up, if you're in the life of seeing someone that you love and you want them to reach their full potential. There's this thing that I wanna say to you today, and I don't want you to miss this. I want you to grab onto it. Listen, how we fight the battles with those closest to us is gonna set the trajectory for how they're gonna fight the battles long after us. Let me say that again. How you fight the battles with the people closest to you, how you live into the things that attack you, that come at you, the unforeseen circumstances, the stressors that you have no control over, how you lock arms with the people closest to you and you fight those battles is going to set a trajectory for how they will fight the battles long after you. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean for you today? See, Joshua, years later, 13 battles later on his deathbed, remembers the way Moses fought that battle. He remembers Moses was surrendered. What does this mean for your 
battles. If your marriage is falling apart, what does this mean for that battle? If, if the depression feels like something that you just can't control, the anxiety is something that you just can't surrender, getting laid off from work is something that you have no idea how to get back up and keep going, what does this mean for your battles? I want to give you three things that I think are, are, are so critical, so important for us to be thinking about as we hear and listen to the story of Moses and Joshua and this very, very first battle. Here, here's the first thing. First, there is a tomorrow in your future. And that's good news, right? There is a tomorrow in your future. See, there's a reality, and I love this about the book of Exodus. When we read the stories in the book of Exodus, every time you see the word tomorrow, you need to pay attention you need to circle it. You need to underline it. You need to see and say, what is God doing in this moment? Because for the Israelites, when God said the word tomorrow, there was hope, right? Remember when they were in slavery in Egypt and Moses shows up with Aaron and Moses and Aaron are going, how are we going to free these people? And God says to them, tomorrow I will send a plague. Tomorrow I will send locusts. Tomorrow the waters will turn to blood. Tomorrow I will create the Passover and the angel will slaughter the firstborn and they will finally let you go. Tomorrow this is going to happen. And so when Moses speaks to Joshua, he said, there, there's a tomorrow in your future. Joshua, tomorrow you're going to fight. Choose some men because tomorrow you're going to fight. And he says, tomorrow I will stand on the hillside. There's hope. Whatever battles you're facing, I want you to hear that today. There is a tomorrow in your future. The way you fight that battle with the people closest to you is going to set the trajectory for how they fight the battle after you. And so the way you're going to fight that battle is by first of all living into the confidence, the courage, the faith that God creates and God holds tomorrows. It's the old hymn, right? I don't know what the future holds, but I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. Here's the second thing today that I think is so important. You got to know this. You got to believe this. You got to start living like you believe this. Your real enemies are not the ones in your closest quarters. They're not. The people in your closest quarters right now, the people that maybe it's been hard to love, maybe it's been hard because there's so much stress, so much tension, so much unspoken things that are not being resolved. I want to say to you, those people in your closest quarters are not your enemies. When we look at this desert narrative story, this wilderness wandering of the Israelites and the, the grumbling, the quarreling, we've got to understand the difference between the Israelites and the Amalekites. See, the Israelites were Moses' people, and I have to think they got on Moses' nerves. I have to think he got tired of them. I have to think he finally hit a point where he was like, God, what do you want me to do with these people? All they do is complain. All they do is grumble. What do you want me to do? But they were still his people. And the Amalekites were the enemies. They were the ones who were coming at the Israelites. See, when we fight those closest to us, when you look at the people closest to you in your close quarters and you treat them like enemies, you forget who the real enemies are. Our homes should be safe places. Right? I, I, I look at this story. Who holds Moses' arms up? It's his brother Aaron. 
It's the person who's closest to him in life, holding him up, lifting him up, saying, don't let your arms get tired. Don't drop those arms. We got to win this battle. We got to go for this. See, the reality is if we're fighting with the people that are in our close quarters, then we're losing sight of who the real enemies are. In our household, we talk about this all the time with our kids when they fight. We mention this all the time. They're probably tired of hearing it, right? We will say, why are you tearing each other down? Why are you criticizing each other? Why are you attacking each other? And, and this, the, the narrative that comes out of that is the reality that as they grow up, as they become women, as they grow and they go out into the world, there's going to be enough forces in this world. And you all know this is true. There's going to be enough forces in the world trying, seeking, desperately working to tear them down. And if that's the case, if the rest of the world and the enemy of our souls, Satan, wants to destroy us, then in our closest quarters, we should feel absolutely safe. Some of you today, you need to look at your spouse at some point and you just need to say, I'm sorry that I've been treating you like you're the enemy. I'm sorry. You're not the enemy. Some of you parents, you need to look at your kids. You need to say, I, I, I apologize to you. I have lost sight of the fact that I'm supposed to be safe for you. Some of you students, kids, you need to look at your parents and say, I'm sorry, you're handling this stress and I need to be lifting you up. The ones in your closest quarters are not the enemy. The third thing that I want to talk about and then we'll close is there's this just fascinating thread of time in this story. The way that the Israelites experience and live into different ideas of time, the past, the present, the future, and the way that God understands the past, the present, and the future. And we've seen it throughout these stories. When it comes to Israel, they look at the past as the place where everything was better than where they are now. So the present is full of discontent if we could only get back to the past. And because of those two approaches to the past and the present, grumbling in the present, longing for the past, they lose sight of the future. But in this story and throughout where God provides manna and water and now victory over the Amalekites, God reframes time. God says, I want you to remember the suffering of your past. I want you to remember what slavery was like. And then I want you to remember in your past how I set you free how I rescued you, how I brought you across the Red Sea. Because when you realize what I did in the past, then the present gets new light. The present gets new hope. And by the way, as you're living with hope in the present, you can long for, you can hope, you can live into the promise of the future that God is going to give you. This is why God says this. Write this down and make sure, make sure Joshua remembers it. Make sure Joshua understands it. See, how you fight those battles with the people closest to you is going to set the trajectory for how they're going to fight the battles long after you. There's just an incredible truth that the battle's not about us. This is what Moses realizes. Moses realizes in this moment with his hands raised, this battle is not about us me. It's actually about this next generation leader. Parents, if you could keep this in mind, right? If, if we could latch onto this and never lose sight of the fact that even when we're stressed, even when we're tense, even when we're struggling, even when we're depressed, even when we're discouraged, that the way we fight that battle 
the way we live into those battles, courageously, sometimes fighting tenaciously, sometimes fighting, and, and, and don't miss this, sometimes you gotta fight by surrendering, right? The best way for Moses to fight this battle was to lift his hands and say, it's not on me. And sometimes that's the way you need to fight. But if we can live into those battles courageously and never lose sight of the fact that, that our kids are watching, that our spouses are watching, that our family's watching, that our friends are watching, that our neighbors are watching, the way we fight our battles, when those battles are long gone, those neighbors, those friends, those kids, those spouses, those, those family members will begin to fight battles with the same courage that we've modeled for them. And I also want to say this today. If you're watching and you're single or you're on your own right now, you're not alone. This series maybe has dealt with relationships more, if you're single, maybe more than you wish it had. Maybe it's been tough to hear about people actually being in close quarters with others because you just feel completely alone. I want to say to you, you're not alone. You're not alone. And I would encourage you, don't be alone. If you're on your own and you need someone, there's got to be someone you trust, someone that you can reach out to and say, I need help. If you need that, if you need someone from, from new community to reach out to you, let us know. Send me a message. Let us know. But you are not alone and you are not meant to live alone. If you're privileged enough to be sitting in a home with family and friends in your close quarters, sit down after this message and ask, who do we know that maybe is on their own right now? And how can we encourage them. As we close today, I want you to look at the people in the room with you or think about the people that you wish were in the room with you. And I want you to pray with them. I, I want to encourage you to maybe take a few moments and, and, and just look at them. Think about what you're grateful for. Tell them what you're grateful for about who they are and pray with them. Pray for the battles that you're facing together. Pray for the, the things that feel like they're attacking you. Pray for the things that you know they're going through. Kids, pray for your moms. Pray for your dads. That's going to be an incredible Mother's Day gift. Dads, pray for your wife. Pray for your kids. Moms, pray for those in your home. Pray for your roommate. Pray for your friend. Whoever it is, look at them before you close today and say, we're going to hold each other's arms up because the way we fight our battles is going to be modeled. It's going to be the legacy that we build. Friends, may you be the people who hold each other's arms up. May you be the people who, when the battle feels like it's sweeping over you, you have the courage to raise your hands and say, God, this battle is yours. May you be strong and very courageous. And may generations after you be inspired by the way you fought your battles with the people closest to you.